This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You are the leader in the courtroom, and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your theory, never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, incredible. The defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's tough to grow a firm by trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to. What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting? Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who needs convincing is you. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, I am joined by attorney Brandon Thompson. Uh, Brandon has got a string of incredible verdicts, most recently in a $111 million verdict in a medical negligence case. Uh, But before we get started, I just wanted to say uh, thank you to Law Pods. Uh, Law Pods is producing this podcast. They make it so easy. Uh, All I have to do is record. They do all the editing, cutting, producing, marketing, everything else. If you're going to have a podcast and if you're an attorney trying to get referrals or even trying to get business from the public, you definitely should. Uh, I highly recommend Law Pods. That being said, let's go ahead and get started. Brandon, how are you doing today? I'm great, Michael. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I uh, practice in Minneapolis, Minnesota, a lifelong Minnesotan. I was born and born and raised here. I've been a plaintiff's uh, personal injury slash medical malpractice attorney for essentially my entire career, which is, gosh, going on 17 years now. What attracted you, first of all, to plaintiff's work? That's uh, an interesting story. So when I was in high school, I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. I knew I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I got roped into doing mock trial when I was in high school. Uh, Went all through undergrad knowing that I wanted to be a trial lawyer, but I had no idea really at the time what that looked like other than that I wanted to be in court. And I thought I probably didn't want to do criminal work. So I kind of just always assumed that I was going to do corporate type work, work for, you know, big corporate litigation. Uh, I did a summer after my second year of law school with a firm in town that will remain unnamed. They did insurance defense work, and I hated it. I hated every second of it. I didn't like the work. I didn't, I just, yeah, I just didn't like it. And so I didn't know what I was going to do. And I actually thought uh, for a time in my third year of law school, you know, do I want to go back and get a PhD and, and teach history or something like that? And then my best friend from law school was planning to join his dad when we graduated. And his dad was a very good personal injury lawyer in town, and he had a solo practice. And so my buddy, Pat Stone King, said, well, why don't you come work with my dad and I? And I kind of thought about it and I thought, God, do personal injury work. I mean, have my face on a billboard. I mean, <laughs> do, I didn't know anything about PI work right other than that. And so I thought, well, what the heck? I might as well give it a try because I don't really know what else I'm going to do. And so I started working there during third year of law school and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved the work. I loved being able to represent real people. And I realized very early on in that time working for that small PI firm that what I had been missing with the firm where I had worked after uh, my second year of law school was working for real people and really making a difference in people's lives. And that kind of feeds into my own kind of personal background a little bit, although I didn't realize it at the time. I never looked back. That's what I've been doing ever since. And I can't imagine doing anything else. I always tell people, I feel like I'm one of those very fortunate people who just happens to have found the thing in life that I really, truly do feel like I was born to do. You said that fits into your personal background. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So very blue collar upbringing, right? So my, my mom is one of 10, she's the eighth of 10 kids. She was the only one of 10 kids to graduate from high school 
believe it or not. My dad worked as an electrician at the Ford plant. I was the first person in my extended family, I mean, going all the way back to getting off the boat from Norway and Germany, first person to go to college in my family. And really kind of having the, how do I put this? The love of service and the love of helping people is just kind of something that was ingrained in me from from really early, really, really early on. And actually, um, my dad's dad was a refrigerator repairman who worked for a time at the federal courthouse in oh, wow. St. Paul, Minnesota. And you can imagine the the pride that he had when his oldest grandson became a lawyer and actually practiced, tried a case in that courthouse. Oh, yeah. And so you do, is it mostly medical malpractice? No. Yeah. So I, um, I've been doing almost exclusively medical malpractice work for about the last 12 years. So that's like one of the hardest ways to make a living other than maybe just doing slip and falls. Uh, one of the hardest ways to make a living as a plaintiff's lawyer, I think, I mean, you know, a trucking case, I can look at a police report and I can say, even if I screw this up, I'm still going to do something with it. You know, it's just, can I, can I make this a huge case or I'm going to screw it up and make it a mediocre case? Whereas medical malpractice, I mean, you don't even always know when it comes in, whether it's going to be a good case and then you can do everything perfectly and still they just, the people like the doctor and they don't want to give money. And so what attracted you to that area of law? So that, that's also a little bit of an interesting story. So when I was a couple of years out of law school, uh, I had my first child and I loved the small practice, but the financial ups and downs of a little tiny personal injury practice were getting a little bit stressful for somebody who was uh, just going to have a baby, right? I mean, whether I settle the case in the last three months or not, this kid's going to still <laughs> need diapers. Yeah. So, so I started thinking about making a change and I actually considered uh, trying the whole business litigation piece of it. I thought, look, if I'm going to make a change, maybe I'm just going to really make a change and try something different. So I applied for a job at uh, what was then Robbins, Kaplan, Miller, and Cerisi in Minneapolis, which was one of the biggest law firms in town. And I applied for a job in the business litigation group. And I got a phone call from their recruiting person. And she said, well, I know that you applied for the business litigation job, but one of our medical malpractice partners, Kathleen Flynn-Peterson, is looking for an associate to, in her practice. Would you be interested in coming in and interviewing for that job? And I thought to myself, well, you obviously don't want me for the business litigation job, so <laughs> so sure. Uh, what the heck, I'll come in. And I knew a little bit about Kathleen at the time, but not much. I didn't, I didn't know that she is one of the best medical malpractice lawyers in the entire country. And quite frankly, I didn't understand at the time what an enormous opportunity it was for me to interview with her. I learned that before I came in for the interview Yeah, and I got lucky. I got lucky that she, she had recently lost an associate, Tom Sinus, who was a great lawyer, still is a great lawyer, practices in Michigan. She really loved working with him. She was heartbroken that he left. She had to find somebody because she had such a busy practice. And she decided to take a chance on me. And she's told me since, and I believe her, uh, look, honestly, I'd interviewed like 50 people and I was sick of interviewing people. So I figured I'd give you a shot. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, I just, I got lucky. And I told you before that I really enjoyed personal injury work. Medical malpractice truly is, I think, the niche that is perfect for me. You're right. It's difficult. It's incredibly difficult. It's it's hard, as you said, to think about a harder way in some ways to make a living practicing law because it is so tough, but it's also fascinating. And the intellectual stimulation that I get from handling these cases and from the tremendous team of people that I'm surrounded with every day, it just, I look forward to going to work every day. I really, truly do. And there, no case is the same. I mean, when I was doing auto cases, you know, you kind of get into a, a groove or a routine and it's sort of the same thing over and over again in a lot of ways. But MedMail is totally the opposite. 
And every case you have, you're building on what you learned on a previous case or the case before that. The um, experts are all brilliant and sophisticated. The defense lawyers, for the most part, are brilliant and sophisticated. And on top of all that, we're able to help people. I mean, we've, we've been fortunate enough that we've got a, a successful enough practice that we've got more work than we know what to do with. And so we get to choose the cases that we're going to handle. And that means that when you're a defense lawyer, sometimes you represent people that maybe you don't want to represent because you get whoever the insurance company gives you. I've got the incredible luxury of only representing people who I truly, truly want to help and feel like need help. And we have the honor of helping them navigate uh, some of the darkest, most complicated times in their lives. And it's a tremendous privilege. And I'm gushing a little bit, but I, I love it. I really do. I did some medical practice work until 2003 when the Texas legislature changed our law. And, and <laughs> you know, I, I took the hint. And uh, But what I found one of the toughest things for me was case selection because I would get to the point where I would no longer meet a client before we reviewed the case for merit because I would meet somebody and their story would be so tragic, but it would be such a tough case to prove. And then I would make really bad decisions based on my heart instead of my head. What do you do to make sure that, you know, you, you pick the right cases? Because that's such an important thing in medical law practice. Well, first of all, what you just described is, I think, the way that my team would describe me. They say, you never want to turn down any case. Yeah. <laughs> and I say, that's what you guys are there for. Um, no, I mean, Michael, you're right. It Case selection is such an important part of what we do. And we've got, you know, we have a really robust system where like you, I mean, we typically don't meet with folks except in really rare circumstances until we've had an opportunity to really vet the case hard. And I told you before, we've got a team of amazing people around us. And some of those people are medical analysts who are actually nurses, doctors, people with medical training who are able to help us with that initial intake process, kind of really sort through a lot of the stuff that isn't something that we would ultimately take on. And then kind of get to the point where we can take a little bit deeper dive into the one, two percent of the cases that we're actually interested in. I think it's a, you know, I think it's a testament to our team and to our process that it is a rare event that we will have a case that we agree to take on that we aren't then able to get expert support for on the very first expert call that we have. Because typically speaking, we've really, really dug in and done our due diligence on a case before we agree to, to take it on. So what are you looking for? Are there certain characteristics that make a good medical malpractice case? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we're running a business, right? And so one of the, one of the key components of any case is it's got to be a really significant injury. One of the biggest mistakes I think that MedMal lawyers make is choosing, kind of having the initial look at a case be based on the perceived strength or weakness of liability. I try not to do that. I don't want to take a case that I think has slam dunk liability, but maybe has questionable damages. Because how many times do you take one of those cases and you you get into it and you realize, well, maybe liability is not as, as strong <laughs> as it was. So it's always, always, always the first criteria is, are, is there really a significant injury here? And part of that is is a business decision. But part of it, quite honestly, is we've got a finite amount of time. We've got a finite amount of resources. And my team and I really want to dedicate those resources to helping the people who we truly feel need our help the most. And so that's the initial criteria. And then we look at liability, of course. I got to see a path to liability. I don't have to be convinced that I'm going to be able to make liability on a case before we agree to take it on, because obviously there's a lot more research and investigation that needs to be done on that piece of the case. But I got to be able to see a path. And then the third criteria for us, and I alluded to this before, it's got to be people who I feel like we will want to work with for years, right? I mean, I always tell people when we first meet with them, I mean, look, we're we're a small law firm, we're a small team, and in a lot of ways, our clients become like family to us. And you've got to be comfortable with us in terms of being somebody that you'd want to sit down and have be a part of your family on Thanksgiving dinner. 
And we want to feel strong about that with you all as well. I still stay in touch with lots and lots of my clients. Actually, one of my, uh, my partner and I just got invited to the wedding of one of our clients. We settled a case for them three years ago, and I still go pheasant hunting with them in South Dakota every year. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So you've had a, you know, in a, in a field that's a tough field, you've had a string of multi-million dollar verdicts in medical malpractice cases. Are there any patterns or characteristics that you find give rise to, you know, being more likely to get a big verdict in the case on besides just the injury? Such an interesting question. And I thought that you would ask a question along those lines. So much of it, I mean, I would I would like to sit here and say, look at all these brilliant things that we do that nobody else is doing that'll allow just you do this too and you'll get these great mm-hmm. verdicts. So much of it in medical malpractice work is the jury that you pick and a lot of that is the jury that you end up with right the pool that you the pool that you start with and sometimes you just frankly got to get lucky yeah and i i tell young lawyers and i tell our clients before a case goes to trial in order for us to win we got to be perfect the defense has to make a couple of mistakes and we got to get lucky <laughs> and it's a it's a small hole to thread, but we got to thread it in order to be successful in your case. You know, so I always tell people, I mean, the work that we do, I think, gives our cases the chance to be successful. And you got to at least have that. And then you got to just kind of let go and hope that you've armed your good jurors with enough to go out there and kind of finish doing your job for you, because it's the rare case that you're going to convince every single person in that jury box to be for you. It really truly is. I think I think after polling jurors, it's maybe happened to me one or two times in my career that we've kind of had them all going into deliberations and we knew we were going to have them. Much more often than not, there's a few holdouts and you've got to have people who are armed with the facts and armed with your arguments to get in there and finish the job for you. Are there certain fact patterns? I, one thing I was thinking about, you know, just in when I was you know, and it's been almost 20 years for me, but uh, mistakes in judgment versus systematic problems versus money-driven decisions or money-influenced decisions versus, you know, just an, an honest mistake. Are there things that you're looking for that you think are more likely to lead to a victory? Yeah, that's a good question. So obviously, mistake in judgment is a pitfall for the plaintiff side. I mean, that is, that is a defense theme that they hammer on and that works much, much more often than it doesn't. And so you've got to be able to frame the case in a way that's really going to allow the jurors to sort of believe that this wasn't just like a, a, an honest mistake in judgment, that, but there was something that happened here that deviates from what you would expect, right? Because one of the things that we're really fighting against is people's internal, you know, Don Keenan would call the reptilian sense of self-protection. And part of that sense of self-protection is to always attribute these bad things that happened to somebody else to some decision that was under that person's control as opposed to out of that person's control, right? Because if I'm a juror and I think, boy, this awful thing happened and it was because the doctor made this stupid decision, well, then I'm thinking, well, but for the grace of God, go I. And the next time I'm in the doctor's office or my daughter or my son or my dad or whoever, that could be me. And so just from a self-preservation standpoint, I think people want to create a narrative in their mind that holds the profession, the medical profession up on that pedestal and protects you from having this cognitive dissonance of feeling like, you know, the next time it's going to be me. And so we've always got to frame it in a way that, try to think about how to put this, that allows the jurors to see this doctor or this nurse or this hospital or this situation as something that is an outlier, is a deviation from the norm. That's so important. And there's a lot of different ways we can do that, of course. Can you, yeah, can you give some examples? Sure. So in, uh, I'll give you an example in the, in the case, uh, the last case that we had, that we got that great result on the frame in that case 
was that, look, this is a good hospital. These are good doctors. I don't know how many times I talked about how these guys were really good doctors. They're good people. We're not here to smear them or anything like that. The fact of the matter is the system at this hospital is set up such that they're kind of overworked. You know, this was a Saturday. These guys were on call. None of them went back and saw this young man for hours and hours and hours and hours before he was discharged from the hospital. That's not really their fault. They were busy doing lots of other things. And the way this hospital is set up, they've made the decision to transition that those discharge decisions to nurses who, God bless them, they're nice and wonderful and good people and everything else, but they're not equipped to make those decisions. And so I didn't, in this case, make the really direct accusation, essentially, that, look, this is a money-driven decision. I actually find a lot of times with conservative jurors in uh, in a place like Minnesota, you lose credibility by trying to directly say that. You want to kind of put it out there and let the jurors come to that conclusion on their own. Look, okay, so why is this hospital set up this way? And I think that is in large part one of the things that drove the verdict in this case. So, yeah, tell a little bit more about the case. So you had, I know you had an $111 million verdict, which is incredible. I know that you had, it was medical negligence. Uh, That's all I know about the, I mean, I read a couple articles, but I don't know a whole lot about it. So tell me about that case. Sure. So we represented a wonderful young man named Anuj Thapa. And Anuj is a citizen of Nepal. And he was 19 years old at the time this happened. And he had been in the United States for a couple of weeks. He and his best friend traveled uh, from Kathmandu on, they were flying on Christmas Day and they were coming to Minnesota to go to college. Let me give you a little bit more background on Anuj because actually I think it's fascinating and it, it gives a little bit of context, I think, for the size of the verdict. So Anuj grew up in a village. I mean, it's a village, a farming village about an hour outside of Kathmandu up in the hills. His, he's from a farming family. He grew up in a, you can call it a house. Some people might call it a hut, a house without, without heat. And he, in Nepal, like in a lot of countries, they have these aptitude tests that they have young kids take that sort of separates the wheat from the chaff, right? And decides who they're going to put their resources towards. And Anuj scored really high on these aptitude tests. And so his folks, God bless them, they scrimped and saved and they borrowed from relatives and they sent Anuj to Kathmandu. He lived with a relative in the capital city so he could go to this elite high school. And he had this dream from early on that he was going to become a mechanical engineer. And in Nepal, I learned this throughout the course of the case, in Nepal, that's like on par with being a doctor or a lawyer. It's like one of the most prestigious positions. And he had this dream that he was going to come to the United States. He was going to get his engineering degree. He was going to work here for a few years and kind of of get an understanding for the profession. And then he was going to move back to Nepal and he was going to kind of be the guy. So he goes to high school in the capital city, does really well in high school. And now he's going to come to the United States and his parents take out loans from some people in the village to send him here. And he goes to, he's going to go to St. Cloud State University. St. Cloud is a kind of a medium-sized city in central Minnesota. There's a, there's actually kind of a big Nepali community there. And I asked these folks why that is, you know, in, in, in the course of the case. And they explained to me, it's because living in St. Cloud is cheap. So it ended up being someplace. <laughs> That's what drives I mean, they were very frank about it. Look, it's cheap and school's cheap and it's a pretty good school. So he and his buddy fly over on Christmas Day and they're going to start um, in the spring semester. And Anuj, in addition to being really a brilliant young man, is a great athlete. He's a really great soccer player. He's a runner. He's a hiker. Uh, you know, grows up in Nepal, right? So he and his buddies are up 
hiking in the Himalayas on the weekends, things like that. And But soccer is his first love. And he's out playing soccer with a bunch of other Nepali kids on a Friday night. And he gets slide tackled. And this kid busts his leg up bad. He it's a it's a really bad break. He's just screaming in pain on the field. They actually call an ambulance, come take him to the the St. Cloud Hospital, goes to the emergency room. They do x-rays. I mean, obviously he's got this really bad fracture. And so they call in the on-call orthopedic surgeon. And the on-call orthopedic surgeon does surgery on him that night, reduces the fracture, puts in a rod, a bunch of screws. They put them all back together again. And he's recovering in the hospital in the early morning hours. Now, when you have a fracture like this, it's a, a high impact sports injury. It's a closed fracture. So even though the fracture was really bad, it didn't break through the skin. You're at really high risk for developing something called compartment syndrome. And inside your leg, it's actually divided up into four compartments. And the muscles and the tissues and the blood vessels and the nerves are kind of in these different compartments. And the compartments are divided by fascia, which is a really tough type of tissue. And what happens with compartment syndrome is you've got swelling inside one of those compartments, but because the fascia is so tough and inelastic, if there's too much swelling in one of those compartments, the compartment itself won't swell and the blood vessels and the nerves will start to get compressed. And the blood supply to that part of the leg will get cut off. Compartment syndrome is one of the few true orthopedic emergencies. It needs to be treated promptly because if you don't treat it promptly, then the muscles and the nerves in that part of the body where the blood supply is cut off are going to die. So doctors are trained when you've got a fracture like this and a surgery like this, you got to watch them carefully for compartment syndrome. They didn't do that for Anoush. And so he spent that day in the hospital. He was in excruciating pain screaming, crying, writhing in pain. They gave him a lot of pain medication. The doctors were called a couple of times. They just kind of bumped up his pain medication. The only time he was, the, the orthopedic surgeon never saw him. He ever saw him after the surgery. His PA saw Anuj one time in the morning, like eight o'clock in the morning. And then it was just nurses from that point on. And the medical records documented, and this is one of the big issues in the case when you talk about that in a minute, the medical records documented that they got his pain under control. And so they discharged him later on that day, like 5, 6 p.m. And he was in excruciating pain when he went home. But he's a kid, 19-year-old kid who is who doesn't speak very good English, and he's been in the country for a couple of weeks. He and his buddies just kind of assume, well, yeah, I'm in pain, but it's the same pain I was in when I was in the hospital. This is just what to expect. And the nurses told him, that, look, the doctors say that you're going to be in pain. This is just what you expect. So he goes home and he's still in pain. But he's thinking, I guess I just got to kind of suck it up and tough it up here because this is just what they told me to expect. And six days pass until finally he and his buddies are just like, this is ridiculous. Like this can't possibly be the way it's supposed to be. So they, there's like 15 of these Nepali college kids and they load them into a car and they take them to the emergency room the next weekend. And the, the, a, a different orthopedic on-call surgeon evaluates them and he's got compartment syndrome and they take him to surgery and they open up his leg and it's, the muscles and the tissues there in there are just gray and dead. Um, and he's mm. got a really bad injury. And they try to do what they can to kind of save some function for him. They save his leg. But he's got significant permanent nerve damage in his leg. He's got a foot drop, so he can't lift up his uh, foot. So he drags his foot behind him. He's got a limp. And it's the type of injury that's really only going to get worse over time, right? Because 
his gait is affected. And so as he limps around day after day after day, that affects his knee and it affects his hip and it affects his back. And on top of that, he's got, because of the nerve damage, he's that, he's got really, he's got significant nerve pain every day. Uh, I mean, it's just every single day, every hour, every minute of every day, he's got pain. And then on top of the physical injuries, he's got some really unique cultural injuries that I really believe drove this verdict in some ways. And there's some other things about the verdict that I think drove it. We can talk about that in a minute, but I want to talk about his the, the cultural thing. I told you that his goal was to come to the U.S. and become an engineer and kind of like be the guy, right? That's like the hopes and dreams of his family and his village and everybody else. That dream got torn from him before it even started. He had to drop out of school for that semester because he was, I mean, he had like 12 different surgeries after this. He was in the hospital for 40 some, in and out of the hospital, rehab, things like that. And he had to drop out of the engineering program. The pain and the derailment of kind of that academic path and the injury, the the physical injury to his leg such that he wasn't able to do the laboratories and things like that. The kid dropped out of the engineering program and ended up being in like general electives or something is going to be his major. I mean, it's some fake major that's just going to allow him to get a, a college degree. And he's going to live with that every day for the rest of his life. He feels like his whole family and his whole village like sent him here to make something of himself. And he's got all this potential and he gets here and the whole thing gets screwed up. And to make matters worse, because of the degree of pain in his leg from the nerves that gets greatly exacerbated by the cold, uh, he can't move back to Nepal because he doesn't think from a pain standpoint, he can tolerate the climate there. And so now you got a kid whose dream was to become an engineer and like return home and be like the savior of his family and his village. And all of that is taken away from him. So that's the case. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. So who were your targets? Who You talked a little bit about you know the systematic stuff, but who did what wrong? The hospital and the orthopedic practice are separate entities. Both were defendants early on in the case. The hospital we dismissed from the case on a kind of an interesting, kind of an interesting agreement that involved them being dismissed without prejudice, um, but we would have the ability to go back and prove up an apparent authority claim against them down the road if there was a big excess verdict, which we're kind of navigating that piece of it now because it was a big excess verdict. But the case was tried against the the orthopedic clinic was the defendant. And there were two individuals whose care was in question. And it was the surgeon and his physician's assistant. And the claim, in a nutshell, was that they should have been monitoring him more closely for the development of compartment syndrome. Somebody should have went back and examined him before they let him go home. If they would have done that, they would have realized that he had compartment syndrome. They would have operated on him then and there, would have been resolved, and he would have been left with essentially no permanent injury. There was a robust defense to that claim, but that was the claim. What was that robust defense? Compartment syndrome, one of the, one of the hallmarks of compartment syndrome is what's called pain out of proportion, right? And the way that the way that the defense presented compartment syndrome is that it is the worst pain imaginable times two or three. It's not subtle. It is incredibly excruciating. And the fact that they were able to get this kid's pain under control by the medical documentation with narcotic pain medication 
means that he could not have had compartment syndrome. Their defense was it would not have been physically possible for him to have had compartment syndrome in the hospital, and he must have developed it when he was at home. Uh, they claimed because he had some dramatic increase in his pain that caused him to come back to the hospital six days later. And I'll tell you, Michael, that was a gift to us that they framed the case that way because it allowed us throughout the case to paint this as a credibility contest and not just a credibility contest, but we were able to paint it as, um, look, in order to buy their story, you have to believe that Anuj and his friends who we had come and testify are lying. There's no two ways about it. And, you know, one of the things that uh, Rick Friedman, fantastic trial lawyer, you know, he's got a book polarizing the case. Yeah. And this was one of those instances where you've got this just golden opportunity to, for a polarization throughout the entire case. And then I really hammered it home in the closing argument, framed it as, look, you've got a decision to make here. You don't have to decide that, you know, the hospital's bad or the doctors are bad because they're not. They're good people. But what's happening here is in order for you to buy the story that they're selling, you've got to believe that this kid and his friends are lying. And the way that I presented it in the closing argument was, do you really think that this 19-year-old kid, he's in the country for a couple of weeks. He's on a student visa. He comes in here and he manufactures a lawsuit. He lies under oath in his deposition. He lies under oath here. We come into, it's a federal courthouse. It's a, this great, big, huge, ornate courthouse. He comes into this federal courthouse with all the trappings and the judge sitting up there in his robe. And, and he looks the eight of you in the eye and he lies to you under oath. He perjures himself. And not only does he do that, he convinces his friends to come in here and perjure themselves. These guys who are here on student visas, what do you think is going to happen to them if they perjure themselves? And they do all of that to make up a lawsuit and convince you to give him a bunch of money. Now, if you believe that that's what happened, if you think that Anoush Thapa is a liar, if you think he's just making this whole thing up, then I hope you go back there in that jury room and you come back here in two minutes with a verdict against us, and all of us should be ashamed of ourselves. But I don't think that's what you're going to do, because I don't think that's what happened. And I think you all know that's not what happened. <laughs> and it wasn't what happened. And obviously, they believed Anuj and they believed his friends. You said there are also other things that drove the verdict. What other things besides, you know, it was a credibility battle. They basically made him out to be a liar. The jury didn't believe that. They didn't like that. So... I think the uniqueness of his injury, right? So this was a one of those rare cases, not unheard of, but a rare case where somebody's got an injury that's bad enough that it affects just about every aspect of their life every day. And he's a young kid, right? He's got a more than a 50-year life expectancy. So you got this tremendously long period of time. So you've got that combination, right? So a lot of times you've got somebody who's got a really bad injury that affects them every day, but the injury, because of the nature of the injury, it affects their life expectancy. It means, you know, somebody's got a brain injury and they're going to live another 10 years, 12 years as a result of that. He's got this unique uh, uh, constellation of things where it's a bad enough injury that it's a big impact on every part of his life. And it's also going to be with him for 50 plus years. Then on top of that piece of it, you've got this unique cultural aspect of it where, you know, find me another case where you've got somebody who truly has had their American dream torn away from them in the way that his was. And I can't emphasize enough what a great kid he is and how credible he truly was, and how just kind and humble he and all of his friends were. I mean, it was just like one of those moments where they're testifying, and you think, 
These are the kind of people that a jury really is going to want to help if they have an opportunity to do that. So certainly I think that drove the verdict. And then more probably than anything else, we got some jurors <laughs> and we got lucky. That There's just no two ways about it. Um, one of the jurors, the juror who ended up being the foreperson actually had talked in jury selection about how going to Nepal was like one of his lifelong dreams. It's on his bucket list of places to go. I can't believe the defense lawyer left him on, by the way. Um, he ended up being the foreperson. And so we, just all of these things all came together. Like I said before, I mean, things went perfectly for us. The defense made some mistakes that we were able to exploit. And we got lucky with a tremendous jury. Do you think somehow a doctor who doesn't go back and see the patient just relies on, you know, what a nurse wrote down is a better case than one where the doctor actually went there and missed it. I mean, if you go there and miss it, it seems like it's a greater act of negligence, but to jury, maybe, you know, if you go there and miss it, that's a mistake of judgment. But if you just don't go, that seems, I mean, I, I want my doctor to check me out before I go home. I think you're absolutely right. Um, from an objective standpoint, you would look at that and you would say, boy, if you go and you have the chance to catch it and you just flat out miss it, like that's really negligent and really dumb. But from a jury appeal standpoint, I think you're right. And that goes back to the whole idea of this cognitive dissonance and wanting to create an outlier, right? For people on the jury, the thought of, boy, the doctor just is kind of ignoring me. That's something that's really easy for people to envision happening, right? Especially in modern healthcare, where, I mean, everybody has been to the doctor or been in a hospital and had the experience of sitting there and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and not knowing what's going on. That's another strong theme for us a lot is the idea that these people are just kind of being kept in the dark, both because it plays into negative feelings that people have, negative preconceived notions people have about the healthcare system. And also because it's a, it's a really scary thing for people to feel like they're being left in the dark about stuff. Yeah. It reminds me of an experience I had uh, just, you know, with the, the medical people don't, not always getting it right. I mean, I, I once, I was actually in court and I had back pain and the pain started moving into my groin area. Um, and while I was driving back from, I had about an hour drive from the courthouse back home. It felt like, honestly, someone was just grinding their their heel on my part of my body. I would not want someone grinding their <laughs> heel on. And so, you know, so I go to the ER and, you know, describe my pain. And then they kept coming back. The next person would come in, oh, so it burns when you pee. Like, no, it doesn't burn when I pee. It feels like someone's stepping on something nearby. And then each person would come in. I mean, finally, like that, when the fifth person came in, like, I don't have VD. I have something else going on. And I had a kidney stone, you know, and what it was. And kidney stone passes and all pain goes away. But it's just like, you know, one person got it wrong. And then every other person came in the room and repeated that wrong thing. And nobody would ever correct it. And it was just so, of course, you're in excruciating pain at the time. It makes it worse. But Nick, no, it was so frustrating that nobody would listen and fix it. Drove me nuts. I don't know if any of that resonates with jurors. No, it absolutely does. And that, that too kind of feeds back into this idea of people have, people sit on a jury with their life's experiences, good and bad. We got to recognize that. And when it comes to the healthcare system, people have a tremendous amount of good preconceived notions about doctors in particular and nurses that we're fighting an uphill battle against, right? They're brilliant. They're caring. They've dedicated their lives to, to wanting to take care of patients. And of course, the defense lawyers are going to play that up as part of their case. So we've got to contend with that. You're not going to get a lot of traction, I don't think, most of the time, unless you've got a really uniquely disgusting doctor. You're not going to get a lot of traction with trying to convince people that their preconceived notions about doctors being caring don't apply in this case. But where you can get some traction is emphasizing the negative preconceived notions, the negative experiences that people have had with the healthcare profession. And so like with your example, with people kind of repeating the same bad story over and over again, not really listening to you, everybody's had that experience when they go to the doctor, feeling like they're not being heard. 
And so there again, if you're presenting a story where the reason that these bad things happened to this person is not because this doctor was like a bad person. It's just because this person wasn't being heard. That doesn't outright eliminate, but it minimizes some of that cognitive dissonance of people trying to overcome their own life's experience because they say, yeah, look, that I've had that happen to me too. My, my doctor is a good person, but they also, there's also been times where I don't feel like I'm being heard. And I could see bad stuff happening because of that. doesn't mean the doctor is an awful person. just means that that the system is set up such that they don't have enough time to be able to spend the time with me that they want to or blah, 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 blah. Again, back to one of your earlier points about this idea of it's a system-wide failure as opposed to a judgment problem. I think all that stuff is critically important. So what was your, we know what the result was. What was your ask to the jury? So this is interesting, right? So there's a lot of discussion and debate amongst trial lawyers about whether you ask for a specific number, how you decide what to ask for in terms of a specific number, when to put the specific number out there. You know, there's a lot of lawyers who believe, and and with good reason, that especially if you're going to ask for a big number, get it out there in voir dire, put it out there in opening. Other cases, uh, maybe that's not appropriate for. And in this case, um, I made the decision to not ask for a specific number. And the the way that I argued it, a way that I have done it, and many, many others do it this way, is you talk about the economic damages, and then you talk about how the non-economic damages are the greatest harm in the case. And the way that I painted it to him, we had a, I can't remember what it was, a 1.5 or a million, I think it was about a million bucks in economic damages in the case. And I talked with them about how not one penny of that goes to compensate Anuj for not being able to go to his back home, not be an engineer, but his pain, all that kind of stuff. And it's up to you to decide whether it's two times that much or five times that much or 50 times that much. I don't know. Well, they decided it was worth a hundred <laughs> times that much. So I'm, I'm glad I didn't give them a specific number. This might be one of those cases where I learned something or not that I learned something that I learned something that maybe I shouldn't have learned. Right. Because now the next case, I'm going to think, well, in that Thapa case, I didn't ask for a specific number and look what happened. And then I won't ask for a specific number and it'll come back to bite me. So there, too, I think so much of it is really kind of case dependent and dependent on the jury that you have and things like that. Another example of how I got lucky. One thing I've learned from doing this podcast is I've been able to talk to a lot of great lawyers who've gotten great results around the country, and they all do it different ways. And so I think it's who you are, who your jury is, and a lot of it has to do with what the case is and what the situation is. No question. You may have lost jurors if you started off talking about $100 million before they heard the facts. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know much about your case. I just... I don't think I or very many other lawyers would have had the chutzpah to ask for $100 million in this particular case. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been something. That's what I was wondering, you know, do they give you less than what you asked for, more than what you asked for? But I mean, that evidently, they, even even by your suggestions of what they could do, they gave more. Yeah. Did you get a chance to talk to them about, you know, what motivated them to do that? I did. I did have a chance to talk with the foreperson on the jury. Uh, I actually had lunch with him. And it was, a as it always is, every time you talk to a juror, after a win or after a loss, it was a fascinating, eye-opening, jaw-dropping experience. They, I believe that they truly were motivated by what a wonderful person Anuj was, what he had been through. And again, this, this cultural, uh, familial type injury that is really so unique. And it was clear to me as I was talking with our foreperson that, as I've said several times already, you know, look, we were just fortunate that he was on the jury. We had, I think, five or six of the eight pretty solid for us going into deliberations. And then he and a couple of the other jurors did the rest of our work for us. And if if there's one takeaway that I have, kind of one learning point from this case, and it's a learning point that that I've learned many times over the years, and David Ball talks about it a lot in his great book, on damages. You got to arm those favorable jurors 
to finish your work for you. And like I said, I, that's a lesson I've learned a number of times, but never has it been hammered home as clearly as it was in this case. It is just so critically important. You know, the people who are against you, man, you're not going to convince them. If you're tailoring your presentation towards trying to convince them, you're only going to make them dig in their heels more. You have got to figure out how to get your story in the hands of the people who are predisposed to your position and give them the talking points that they need to finish the job for you back in that jury room. That's so important. I will tell you that that is so liberating. At least for me, it was so liberating when I finally internalized that. I'd read it, but when I finally internalized it, because I don't have to go and be so brilliant that I convince everybody. I just have to go arm people to do their job, and then no, that's their job. And so my job is just right. to go in the court, have fun, present the case, arm my people, and then then I let go. And yeah. it's just been so much more fun and so much less stressful, believe it or not, at least for me. I don't know. I can't speak for you uh, since I've accepted that. No, absolutely. I mean, look, trying cases is fun. And I hope I hope that if you've made your career out of being a trial lawyer, that it is fun for you. Because let's be honest, um, it's a really hard and stressful way to make a living. So it better be fun. Because if it's not, you got a long, miserable path ahead of you. And so much of that, too, it's something else that you said um, a minute ago, Michael, and it really rung true with me, the importance of really being authentic and being yourself. And that's part of having fun. You know, if you're up there trying to trying to play the role of somebody who you think is the lawyer that you're supposed to be, not only are you unlikely to be successful, you're not going to have any fun. At all. That's absolutely true. One other thing that warms my heart about your story is you hear so much, and I'm not saying there's not some truth to it, but like jurors don't care about their client. You have to make it about them and about making the defense threaten them. And, you know, they just, they just selfish animals that don't care. So it is nice to know that they, at least some jurors really do care and are motivated by the fact that it was a good person who had his dreams taken away and it didn't move them. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting point. So I like probably many of us, just about every case now, get a motion in limine to prevent us from uh, using the reptile strategy, right? See it in just about every case now. And my response to that is always, well, you know what? I read the book. I get it. Don Keenan is an amazing lawyer and a brilliant guy, but I don't subscribe to that philosophy and that's not the way that I try cases. I've thought about this a lot, a lot over the years. And I thought about whether I'm making a mistake by not trying cases that way. I think there's a place for that kind of strategy and that kind of approach. Maybe in, in the right trucking case, for example, the, this idea of triggering the reptilian part of your brain is, is an effective way of doing it. And it's all about safety rules and safety regulations and things like that. I think it's that med mal cases are a little bit less well-suited to that. And I'm I'm sure Don Keenan has tried many malpractice cases using that strategy and has been a heck of a lot more successful than me. So that's just one guy's opinion. But for my style and the the types of jurors that I see and the types of cases that I have, I think that there's a different pathway. And I think that at least for the for the way that I try cases, I just don't think that I can authentically tell that piece of the story and also give the impression to the jurors that I'm not here trying to say that these these doctors or these folks in the hospital are bad people doing bad, nefarious things. Absolutely. Um, and I kind of want to, I was going to ask you this earlier, but we just kind of got into the story and I was enjoying the story. So I'm going to kind of ask a little out of order. Uh, so you, I've heard you've mentioned, uh, you know, Don Keenan, Rick Friedman, David Ball, uh, you know, you've been really, really successful in trial. What have you done through your career to develop your skills and knowledge as a trial lawyer? Yeah. So lots of, lots of trial skills seminar. And, you know, I've referenced a couple of books. I mean, I read just about every book I can get my hands on, listen to trial lawyer podcasts, watch videos of people who I think have a lot to offer. I mean, there's so many incredible trial lawyers out there. But outside of kind of the traditional learning things, just talking to people, just talking to people. 
And some of that, I think, harkens back to my own personal background. You know, the reality of it is a lot of times when I'm thinking about how am I going to tell this story to a jury, I think about how would I get my uncle Leon to find in my favor on a case like this, right? Uncle Leon hates lawyers. He hates lawsuits, (laughs) but there's a way to get through to him and understanding how to talk to regular people is such a critical thing for us. And as you pointed out, Michael, there's lots of different ways to be a successful trial lawyer. And there are people who have had tremendous success trying cases, wearing a bow tie and a three-piece suit and talking like an egghead professor, right? People can do that. I've found that that's not me. And I've found that for me, the way I like to try cases, just being able to talk like a regular human being and act like a regular human being, I think is a big part of the success that I've had. You got to be able to connect with these folks. And the only way that you know how to connect with the folks who are in the jury box is to be able to authentically connect with people like that outside of the jury box. And part of that is personality, but and part of it's practice. The way you learn how to talk to people is by talking to people. That's great. I was going to ask you what advice you have to give, but I think you just gave it. <laughs> Go seek out my uncle Leon and, and talk to him about your next case. He lives in North Carolina. <laughs> I, I live in Texas. There are lots of people here that don't like lawsuits. Our lawyers. Yeah. And, uh, we had a great jury. She got off for cause, but uh, on our last, I say great jury. It was in jury selection. She actually got up at one point and said, you know, I'm 71 and I didn't have to be here. I'm old enough where I could have excused. And if I knew it was a personal injury case, I would have done that. <laughs> <laughs> It was great. You know, thank you so much. Who else feels that way? <laughs> right. I appreciate your honesty. But uh, but talking, you know, talking to those kind of people, I think is, I, I think some people get and make the mistake of of living in a bubble and only talking to people that agree with them and think like them. And uh, I think for what we do for a living, we need to learn how to talk to all kinds of people. Yeah, there's no question about that. Is there anything else you want me to ask you? Hi, Michael, I don't think so. I think we've covered kind of the topics that I was expecting that we covered. This has really been a, this has really been a pleasure. We talk, talk about, you know, just wanting to kind of talk to people. It's been great talking with you. <laughs> you too. Uh, well, one last thing, if someone wants to get a hold of you, either they, they've got a question or maybe they've got a medical negligence or other big case in, in Minnesota, how do they get, how do they find you? The easiest way to get in touch with me is just send me an email. Um, and I don't know if you want me to give my email address or you yeah, give it and we'll put, we'll put it in the show notes, but a lot of people just listen. So go ahead and say it too. So it's B. E-T, just my initials, although I never use my middle initial except in my email address because I think it's pretentious. <laughs> bet. That's awesome. Uh, I mean, it's easy to remember. Yeah, bet. right. Right. So bet at CeriseConlon.com. C-I-R-E-S-I-C-O-N-L-I-N.com. So all the benefits of having the easy to remember and spell bet is just destroyed by the Cerise Conlon. <laughs> but a great friend. I love <laughs> I love my partners. Mike Cerisi and Jan Conlon are tremendous people and tremendous lawyers. Man, I wish I had they had easier to spell last names. <laughs> but a, but a, a great firm. Y'all get great results. Uh, and I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for coming on. I, hopefully, I'll do you go to AJ conventions or anything like that? It's been a while since my last AJ convention, um, but I've been meaning to get back, and I certainly plan to do it in the future. So I'd love to see you there, Michael. This was a real pleasure. Yeah, if you do, you know, find me. We'll go grab a drink or have a cup of coffee or something. I'd love to talk to you some more and uh, keep knocking them out of the park. Sounds like a plan. Thanks much. Okay, thank you. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff-lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. 
Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.